Welcome to Poems for Company. I'm your host, Brian Dillon. Today's episode features poems about Frederick Douglass. He earned national attention in 1845 with the publication of his stunning autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave written by himself. Over the course of the next half century, he traveled the country promoting political candidates who supported an end to slavery, met with Lincoln in the White House, advocated for black men to join the Union Army during the Civil War, and voiced his political and moral opinions in many publications. The young black poet Paul Dunbar published a stirring poem of praise back in 1896, the year after Douglas died. I will just read a few stanzas from Dunbar's poem, simply titled, Frederick Douglass. In this stanza, he notes that Douglass depicted the brutalities of slavery without flinching. And he was no soft-tongued apologist. He spoke straightforward, fearlessly uncowed. The sunlight of his truth dispelled the mist and set in bold relief each dark-hued cloud. To sin and crime he gave their proper hue and hurled at evil what was evil's due. That's just one stanza from Paul Dunbar's poem titled Frederick Douglass. Douglass's own memoir highlighted the hypocrisy of church-going slave owners. Douglas wrote, We have men-stealers for ministers, women-whippers for missionaries, and cradle-plunderers for church members. Dunbar may have had th- that passage in mind when he claimed to sin and crime he gave their proper hue and hurled at evil what was evil's due. Later in his poem, Dunbar asserts that Douglas was a warrior for racial equality, and now, after his death, he must continue to serve as an inspiration. These next lines are from Dunbar's concluding stanzas. We weep for him, but we have touched his hand and felt the magic of his presence nigh. The current that he sent throughout the land, the kindling spirit of his battle cry. O'er all that holds us we shall triumph yet, and place our banner where his hopes were set. O Douglas, thou hast passed beyond the shore, but still thy voice is ringing o'er the gale. Thou's taught thy race how high her hopes may soar, and bade her seek the heights, nor faint, nor fail. Dunbar was in his early twenties when he wrote this poem, and he quotes his homage to Douglas with hero worship, places Douglas on a pedestal. He looks upon Douglas and admires him. That's understandable considering Dunbar did get to know Douglas in Douglas's final years. 
The poems I want to focus on allow us to humanize Frederick Douglass, to lower the pedestal from the elevated position Dunbar placed this subject so that we see him with more clarity. He was not a mythical creature, but a flesh and blood individual who dealt with conflicts under his own roof that would challenge any of us. The poems I will read also provide insight about his first wife, Anna Murray Douglas. They are persona poems. The first in the voice of Anna, the second in the voice of Frederick Douglass himself. We must celebrate the fact that a runaway slave could compose his own story in an era that violently discouraged even basic literacy among slaves. As the subtitle of his narrative says, written by himself. But he never details the role Anna played in his life. His courtship of Anna, her living circumstances before she married him, what she risked in marrying a runaway slave, all are left out of Frederick's narrative. Anna Murray was a free black woman when Douglas met her. Within days of fleeing his master in Baltimore and heading north, she joined him in New York, and they married. She displayed a bucket load of trust in him. What historians assert is that she was illiterate, and so left no account of herself, of her motivations, of her concerns about how she will be remembered. Poetry has remedied this circumstance. Imagination must bring to life her contributions. And this next poem does that. Here's the setup to a poem by M. Zadi Kaida for the extended period when they lived in Rochester, New York. Frederick and Anna Douglas opened their home to slaves fleeing north via the Underground Railroad. That is, strangers would arrive at their door and be given shelter. Often, Frederick was away, endorsing a political candidate's campaign or advocating for the expansion of voting rights. Anna stayed home. She dealt with the surprise guests. M. Zadikeda's poem, Stirring, opens with this epigraph by the only daughter of Anna and Frederick Douglass to live into adulthood, Rosetta Douglass Sprague, who wrote, Being herself one of the first agents of the Underground Railroad, mother was an untiring worker. And after that epigraph by the Douglass's daughter, Rosetta, we get the poem. Stirring. By now, their breath has thawed, they're drunk on sleep. A trouser-wearing woman with one hand just sits. Her mouth stays fixed on calling Sill, her daughter's dead name, rubbed to burlap strands. A boy whose rough low singing charms the room stands up but loses words to bless the food. 
some stare, some cradle every taste, some lean too near the fire as I stir. One eats the steam. This choir of beef and beans could harmonize and banish what they thought would never die. A bit of food and music is no cure in truth. But what I cook into this stew does make these shadows talk. They'll feel their new selves catch and light. Now watch what black hands do. That's M. Zadi Keda's poem, Stirring. In this persona poem, the poet speaks in the voice of Anna Murray Douglas. The poet imagines what Anna thinks as she details the new arrivals under her roof when, presumably, her husband is absent and she's in charge. Her visitors have fled the South, moved into strange territory, risked arrest under the Fugitive Slave Act, and are exhausted. Anna observes them in this poem and discreetly mentions her actions. I stir and I cook. Not only hungry and tired, these recent slaves heading north, seeking their freedom, bring all their charged emotions under her roof, including the woman who repeats her daughter's dead name. It's spelled C-I-L-L-E, perhaps short for Cecilia, and I'm pronouncing it Sil, which I hope is correct. Let's hear the poem stirring once more. By now their breath has thawed, they're drunk on sleep. A trouser-wearing woman with one hand just sits. Her mouth stays fixed on calling Sill, her daughter's dead name, rubbed to burlap strands. A boy, whose rough low singing charms the room, stands up but loses words to bless the food. Some stare, some cradle every taste, some lean too near the fire as I stir. One eats the steam. This choir of beef and beans could harmonize and banish what they thought would never die. A bit of food and music is no cure in truth, but what I cook into this stew does make these shadows talk. They'll feel their new selves catch and light. Now watch what black hands do. That's M. Zadikata's poem, Stirring. Anna presumes this first meal these runaway slaves have enjoyed in many weeks, this meal she provides, will help carry them across the threshold to their new lives. A bit of food and music is no cure in truth, but what I cook into this stew does make these shadows talk. They'll feel their new selves catch and light. Now watch what black hands do. 
in what we may consider a companion poem to Stirring, in a poem titled History, Kata again reminds us of Anna's chores in her home aiding former slaves fleeing their masters. Again, she shares with us her imaginative account of, of Anna's unvoiced thoughts. In the poem History, Anna anticipates how historians who assess her husband's life will treat her. She anticipates she will be hushed into silence on the historian's pages, relegated, as the poem's final line says, to the role of the wife of an important man. Curiously, I was introduced to Cata's poems by reading David Blight's biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Blight admits it's unusual for his, us, a historian to rely on a poet, but Anna could not write, and Frederick typically was guarded about his domestic situation. Blight says Cata has tried through literary imagination to give Anna a voice for her seething resentments, to tell her side of this mysterious, anguished story. Cada's poetry provides us a language by which we can gaze into Anna's ex interior world. Evie Shockley's poem, from the Lost Letters of Frederick Douglass, unfolds nearly a full decade after Anna Murray Douglass has died. This, too, is a persona poem and an epistolary poem, as the title, From the Lost Letters of Frederick Douglass, indicates. Frederick writes to his adult daughter Rosetta after his second marriage, to a woman named Helen. He seeks understanding and forgiveness from his daughter regarding three personal features. About the long-term presence in his house of a German-born woman named Adelie Assing. About his second marriage to Helen. And about his perceived lack of affection for Rosetta's mother, Anna. I'll read the poem before commenting further. This is Evie Shockley's poem from the Lost Letters of Frederick Douglass. June 5th, 1892. Dear daughter, can you be 53 this month? I still look for you to peek around my door as if you'd discovered a toy you thought gone for good, ready at my smile to run up and press your fist into my broken palm. But your own girls have outgrown such games, and I cannot pilfer back time I spent pursuing freedom. Fair to you? To your brothers? Your mother? Hardly. But what other choice did I have? What sham, what shabby love could I offer you 
so long as Thomas Ald held the law over my head. And when the personal threat was ended, whose eyes could mine enter without shame if turning toward my wife and children meant turning my back? Your mother's eyes stare out at me through yours of late. You think I didn't love her, that my quick remarriage makes a Gertrude of me, a corseted Hamlet of you. You're as wrong as you are lucky. Had Anna Murray had your education as a girl, my love for her would have been as passionate as it was grateful. But she died illiterate, when I had risked my life to master language. The pleasures of book and pen retain the thrill of danger even now, and you may understand why Ottilie Assing, come into our house to translate me into German, could command so many hours, years of my time, or as you would likely say, of your mother's time. Forgive me, Rosetta, for broaching such indelicate subjects, but as my eldest child and only living daughter, I want you to feel certain that Helen became the new Mrs. Douglas because of what we shared in sheaves of my papers. Let no one persuade you I coveted her skin. I am not proud of how I husbanded your mother all those years, but marriage, too, is a peculiar institution. I could not have stayed so unequally yoked so long without a kind of freedom in it. Anna accepted this. And I don't have to tell you that her lot was better and she happier than if she'd squatted with some other man in a mutual ignorance. Perhaps I will post rather than burn this letter this time. I've written it so often, right down to these closing lines, in which I beg you to be kinder, much kinder, to your stepmother. You two are of an age to be sisters, and of like temperament. Under other circumstances, you might have found friendship in each other. With regards to your husband, I am as ever your loving father, Frederick Douglass. The poem begins with sentimentality, with Frederick wistful at the passage of time, this is stanza one from The Lost Letters of Frederick Douglass by Evie Shockley. June 5th, 1892. Dear daughter, can you be 53 this month? I still look for you to peek around my door as if you discovered a toy you thought gone for good, ready at my smile to run up and press your fist into my broken palm. But your own girls have outgrown such games, and I cannot pilfer back time I spent pursuing freedom. Fair to you, to your brothers, 
Your mother? Hardly. Frederick expresses some guilt in this letter, but also urges Rosetta to recognize that their family tensions must be understood within the context of historical circumstances. Yes, he was frequently away from his wife and children, demanding an end to slavery. I cannot pilfer back time I spent pursuing freedom, his letter declares. That's freedom with an uppercase F. Stanza 2 begins with the word but. Frederick moves into a defensive posture. The stanza refers to Thomas Ald, who owned Frederick, who Frederick ran away from, and for years after Rosetta was born, Frederick remained at risk of capture and being returned to Ald. Ald may also have been Frederick's father. But what other choice did I have? What sham, what shabby love could I offer you so long as Thomas Ald held the law over my head? And when the personal threat was ended, whose eyes could mine enter without shame if turning toward my wife and children meant turning my back? As the poem, or in this fictional context, the letter continues, Frederick acknowledges Rosetta judges the hastiness of his second marriage, that she sees him as similar to Shakespeare's Gertrude, who married thoughtlessly after her husband's sudden death. This next passage also names Ottilie Assing and Helen Douglas, both white women, not merely literate, but intellectuals. Rosetta must have felt dismayed that her father granted them so much attention while neglecting her mother. He's on the defensive, yes, but he also seems haunted by guilty feelings. He presents the argument that time spent with Ottilie and Helen were devoted to their shared efforts in assisting Frederick's published writings and their love of reading. Anna Murray Douglas never shared these activities with her husband. She remained illiterate while her husband and children were literate. Let's hear this next extended section. Your mother's eyes stare out at me through yours of late. You think I didn't love her, that my quick remarriage makes a Gertrude of me, a corseted Hamlet of you. You're as wrong as you are lucky. Had Anna Murray had your education as a girl, my love for her would have been as passionate as it was grateful. But she died illiterate when I had risked my life to master language. The pleasures of book and pen retain the thrill of danger even now, and you may understand why Adelie Assing come into our house to translate me into German could command so many hours, years of my time, or as you would likely say, of your mother's time. Forgive me, Rosetta, for broaching such indelicate subjects, but as my eldest child and only living daughter, I want you to feel certain that Helen became the new Mrs. Douglas because of what we shared in sheaves of my papers. Let no one persuade you I coveted her skin. 
I am not proud of how I husbanded your mother all those years. But marriage, too, is a peculiar institution. I could not have stayed so unequally yoked so long without a kind of freedom in it. Anna accepted this, and I don't have to tell you that her lot was better and she happier than if she'd squatted with some other man in a mutual ignorance. In one of the poem's most extraordinary passages, Frederick seemingly admits he ignored his marital vows when with both Ottilie and Helen. I could not have stayed so unequally yoked so long without a kind of freedom in it. Anna accepted this. Of course, we don't know, we'll never know, what domestic turmoil Anna accepted. This passage ends with a stinger. Your mother knew what her alternative most likely would be had I not married her. I don't have to tell you that her lot was better and she happier than if she'd squatted with some other man in a mutual ignorance. The poem then closes with a plea for Rosetta to try harder to accept Helen. He wonders whether he will post this letter. He fears Rosetta's response and perhaps thinks his daughter will maintain her grudge regardless of anything he says. His sign-off is nearly formal. Perhaps I will post rather than burn this letter this time. I've written it so often, right down to these closing lines, in which I beg you to be kinder, much kinder, to your stepmother. You two are of an age to be sisters and of like temperament. Under other circumstances, you might have found friendship in each other. With regards to your husband, I am, as ever, your loving father, Frederick Douglass. Douglass was separated from his own mother when he was an infant. She was a field worker on land about 12 miles from where young Frederick was raised. A few times she'd walk the 12 miles after dark to see him and then walk back to her shack in the dark in order to be in the fields ready to work at sunup. I do not recollect of ever seeing my mother by the light of day, he says in his memoir. He thinks he was about seven when she died. And as noted earlier, his master may very well have been his father. It's helpful to keep this information in mind when assessing his weaknesses as a husband and parent. Frederick Douglass certainly lacked role models in those crucial dimensions of life. I want to note that M. Zadi Keda's volume, Brief Evidence of Heaven, Poems from the Life of Anna Murray Douglas, is available at spdbooks.org. E.B. Shockley's From the Lost Letters of Frederick Douglass is included in her 2011 volume, The New Black. I'm merely sampling on this show you could immerse yourself in a much fuller range of the poets you enjoy hearing here by reading one or more of their books. If you visit the kmun.org website and click on the podcast link, you will find a list of all the poems read on all my shows, month by month, and in most cases, 
the book title, and publication information, so you may then seek out any of these books on your own. Our theme music is Philip Alberg's Going to the Sun from a CD live from Montana, available at sweetgrassmusic.com. Thank you for listening to Poems for Company.